As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wilsoncroft. Happy Monday. How are you doing? It's been another busy Premier League weekend. It saw Chelsea get a much-needed win over their London rivals, Fulham. Manchester City moved up to second. Leicester are now third. And the defending champions, Liverpool, dropped to fourth after an entirely predictable goalless draw with the leaders, Manchester United. We'll discuss that. As well as Mesut Ozil's impending departure from Arsenal, and the ultimate screamers. You'll find out a little bit more about that later on. But to help me through it all, Matt Dickinson, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Very well, Hugh. You? Very well, very well. Good to hear at least one of you. Look, the audience don't know it. Mega technical problems today. We're going to try our absolute <laughs> best to get through it. And I will take full responsibility. It is all my fault. Let's see how it goes. And uh, I think I, I might as well say thanks to our producer, John, at this point, because he's going to have a big job on his hands a little bit later on today. Um, let's start, though, um, by quickly dissecting the game at Anfield. It was the one that was, of course, massively hyped and ultimately an anti-climax for the neutral. Um but I wonder from a Manchester United perspective, was it a valuable point or an opportunity missed? And that's my overarching question, I think. Matt, I'll start with you. For Manchester United, a valuable point or opportunity missed? If it's not sitting on the fence, you could say it's a bit of both. I mean, you know, a, a valuable point in the sense of they're going to the home of the champions, even if they're, you know, champions who are... Um, certainly struggling by their own standards at the moment. It, you know, you considered just a few months ago that United were getting battered by, uh, well, by Spurs. They were defending chaotically in the in the Champions League. So, you know, that there is progress. There is clear progress. Uh, and yet, of course, when you have the two or three best chances of the game, the chance to increase your lead at the top of the table, um, of course, there's going to be a, a bit of frustration. So, I'd, you know, it's, but yeah, as an overall sign, you know, it's uh, if you're leaving Anfield disappointed that you haven't won, then that, that, that's not a bad indicator in itself, I guess. Ali, what about you? For Manchester United, valuable point or a missed opportunity? Oh, absolutely valuable point for Manchester United. Lucky, lucky them. I, I don't quite know why everyone's a bit grim about this. I mean, I predicted a nil-nil. Most people I know predicted nil-nil. It's always nil-nil. These, I mean, A, big overhyped games tend not to be as good as they're hyped. And, um, you know, tight, tight rivalries like this tend to produce nil-nils. Uh, so I wasn't surprised at all. I thought it was an interesting game. I thought Liverpool played the better football. Man United defended exceptionally well. One of their best defensive performances I've seen. I think they should be very pleased with that defensive performance. Slightly 
also miffed that everyone seems to be laying into um, Roberto Firmino. Uh, oh, drop him now. Oh, he's rubbish. I mean, it was only a few weeks ago everyone was saying he got his mojo back and he was still one of the most beautiful players in that odd position he has where he sort of is and isn't a, a striker. It was an OK game and Man United should be very, very happy they went to Anfield and got a point. Greg, a valuable point or missed opportunity for Manchester United? Valuable point. I mean, I said that before the game. I said that last week. I think both teams would really be happy with a point at the end of the game. And, you know, there's a conversation about the way Manchester United approached the game. You know, was as you say, it was an opportunity because Liverpool were weakened. But you could have that conversation about the way Man United approach most games, to be brutally honest. You watch Liverpool and they're always the main protagonist. They're the team that, you know, dominate possession, trying to win the game, look like it anyway. But in saying that, Manchester United's game plan almost worked. They had the best chances at the end of the game. Um, they defended well, rode their luck a couple of times. Liverpool, as I say, on the ball, Thiago was kind of an absolute dreamboat in periods in that first half, the way he was playing. And it looked like Manchester United, you know, it was a mo- it was a matter of time until they conceded. But in saying that, as I say, they rode their luck, they defended well. And at the, as the, the longer the game went on, the more stretched it became, the more kind of opportunities they got on the break. And as I say, they had the best chances probably to win the game in the end. So I don't think we really could be surprised by the way, Man United approached the game. We talked about it last week. How how were they going to do it? And they kind of did a bit of a hybrid, didn't they? They they, they wedged Paul Pogba in on the right, and they still played with McTominay and Fred in front of the back four. Um, but as I, I say, I'm, I wasn't surprised by that. I'd call it a missed opportunity, and and <laughs> I'll, pick, I'll, I'll tell you why. Look, as a Manchester United fan, you take the point all day long at Anfield, but that's not the point. When I when I say it, it was a missed opportunity, what I mean is, you know, you you say the game plan almost worked because Manchester United almost scored a goal. But the game plan was awful from the start of the game. And if Liverpool's front three were at their brilliant best, it would have been a totally different story. Uh, Solskjaer gave away control of the game with the formation. Thiago was given the the freedom of Liverpool, frankly. As brilliant as he is, that's the one player you probably don't want to give the freedom of Liverpool to. And he never really changed the pattern of the play. At halftime, I think he needed to do something a bit more drastic than he did. And he didn't. He At times it felt like he lacked the determination to really go for it. You know, you're playing against makeshift centre-backs in the shape of Jordan Henderson and Fabinho. Manchester United did not create a clear goal-scoring opportunity for any of their forward players, Rashford, Martial or Cavani, when he came off the bench against those two playing at the back. Pogba never really found a role in the game, although he had a, an excellent chance. Bruno Fernandes really never found a role in the game. He drifted drifted in and out, even though he had a good opportunity to score as well. And Manchester United were just, for me, they were just disjointed, although they defended quite well. I think Salah wasn't really at it. Firmino wasn't really at it. And if they were, I think it would have been a different story. I mean, you just, in my opinion, that was why it was a missed opportunity, because as the game wore on, I think it was there for Manchester United to do a little bit more to maybe... You get three points and look, you, you take the point, but could they have scored? Yes. If they had given one of those great opportunities to one of their forward players, would they probably have scored? Yeah, in my opinion. So that's the only reason I'd call it a missed opportunity. However, I was delighted with the point. If you're going to slate Solskjaer's tactical approach and his mentality for that game, 
then you, sh- you then to get a point you should be over the moon i mean i you're not what you're what you've just described here is not what happened on the day really what you're describing is your inner angst at the way your team is run it's asking something of Manchester United under Solskjaer that they are not in the biggest game of the season at Anfield. So you're you're kind of it's unrealistic expectations at this point, to be brutally honest. Man United don't well, is it? Don't take Do you know what I said, Gregor? Yeah, uh, what was unrealistic about saying? Could you give a could you give could you get a clear goal scoring opportunity, one of them, for one of your three forwards? That's not unrealistic. It doesn't matter they, who, they, doesn't matter who Marcus, gets the chances. Manchester United had the best chances in the game. So, you know, they, they might have fallen right, to the wrong point. people. One, one of them failed to Fernandez. He had a, a cut back from Shaw. It was a great opportunity. Didn't score it. Pogba had a great chance. So, uh, also, too much has been made, in my opinion, of the the centre-halves. They were outstanding. Liverpool's outsta- centre-halves were outstanding. What, what that does is create a bit of a weakness in midfield for Liverpool. That's the bigger issue. And it, it makes it difficult for them to sustain their attacks. But they were outstanding defensively. So, you know, I think, we can get caught up in that. And yes, it was, that was a big issue when the team sheets came out and you thought, oh, this is a chance. This is a chance. But they're top class players. Well, what I'm saying is about Manchester United and, and missing the opportunity is they, and, and I, you raise a good point about midfield. When I say they never really found a role for Fernandez and or Pogba, what I meant is it, it clearly wasn't working in midfield. It, it clearly was Liverpool dominating the game through midfield. And the reaction wasn't to go back to a 4-3-3 possibly or a 4-2-3-1. It was was basically to continue and to see what happened. And ultimately, had Liverpool had a better day going forward, because I I think they were excellent, well, they had 20 shots in the game. Um, It's a totally different story. I just, the the pattern of play for Manchester United was to seed possession and, and see if you could hold out, basically. And yes, they got the chances, on the break, but I actually think those came because of exactly what you're saying. You know, Liverpool's better players in midfield for me, Fabinho and Henderson, in terms of stopping attacks, were right at the heart of their defence. And and in my opinion, if they were in midfield, you know, the the way that Solskjaer played, he could have easily been beaten in that game. You know, it was for me that point was more about Liverpool being out of kilter than anything else. I think that's a bit... Uh, I, well, I, I take your first point. The fact is that, you know, Fernandez in that role, it should have been his job to get about Thiago more. Um, and as you say, to a spot, spotted it. I mean, not, you know, that's clearly not using Fernandez to his strengths, but uh, as in a sort of, uh, you know, ultimately, if they were, if he wasn't going to be able to, to get involved as a playmaker, which he was struggling, struggling to, then... Yeah, you needed someone in that position, basically, as a sort of number 10 role to say, look, you're going to have to sacrifice yourself to effectively be destructive. Um, and it was it was too slow to get to that. But I think I, I think you're a bit... I mean, you know, here I am, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, uh, I think that they did change it a bit. I mean, there was Paul Popper was spending too much of the first 20 minutes, half an hour, stuck at basically auxiliary right back. Wambasaka was tucking in, and he was he was there covering Robertson's incursions. And I think they did shift that around. Actually, Pogba went more central for a while. I think they st- started to stifle Liverpool's midfield a bit. Started to come back into the game before half time. Had some, obviously the best of the the chances in the second half. So you know, look, it was no tactical uh, wizardry. It, far from it. It was sort of you know. Making making do, um, but yeah, I think 
the way you're talking, like Gregor says, I think you're sort of imagining that Man United are a team that are going out and dominating games and bossing games and ordering games around and and they're not, you know, they're a team that is sort of, you know, feeling their way towards a system, uh, you know, Solskjaer likes to, you know, he's been brought in as the sort of, you know, memories of Ferguson. He talks, loves to sort of, you know, re um, refer to the good old days, but they're a long way yet from finding a, a defining pattern, which actually say makes you think, well, okay, if, you t if you're getting a nil-nil draw at Anfield at the moment, for where they are, for where they need to go, for where they're trying to go, that's probably about yeah, a, a decent measure of where they're at. I thought Solskjaer got the tempo of that right, actually, because I say that because uh, when Cavani came on, I started bleating. I was getting worried. I had a feeling he'd come on at exactly the right time and the ball was going to fall to him and he was going to be the difference. But it wasn't. It's just, it's just the way these things go. But I don't think you could... I really wouldn't criticise Solskjaer overall. I think given what we know he is and how he approaches most games going to Anfield when you're top of the table. I think, I think he, I think he got the pattern right. And I would not have been surprised had Cavani sneaked it at the end. Actually, I thought there was that sense of momentum and a gaining of slight control of the tempo of the game. So I, I know why you're disappointed here, but I, I would not, I would not knock Solskjaer on this one at all. I'm just presenting the other argument, you know, I'm just trying to conduct a conversation here. You know, Manchester United fans, don't at me. Go on, Gregor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just thinking like that, you know, when I was watching the game, Manchester United under Sir Alex Ferguson didn't always go to Anfield and dominate the game and like, you know, really take the game to Liverpool. And that wasn't Jurgen, a Jurgen Klopp Liverpool either. So, uh, well, what you're saying is true. Yeah, Craig, I would like to see Manchester United be the team who who really kind of have a, have a pattern, a system and a way of dominating the game. But they're not. That's not them. So when they go to Anfield... That's not what I'm asking them to do. I'm not asking them to dominate the game. I'm, I, I'm, I'm asking them to have a sort of clear style, really. I but never felt it was that. What I we felt know was, that. <laughs> no, what I felt was... Yeah, what I felt was... It was almost like you, you, you're clinging on to the result. You're rolling the dice. You're seeing what might happen. And then you get a good couple of opportunities that could easily, that's in my opinion, have gone the other way as well, you know, and... Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, look, maybe I was asking for too much. This is not the game to have that conversation. That's all I'm saying. That is Manchester United under Solskjaer. I think we know that. We've discussed that plenty. So if they go to Anfield and they have a goalless draw and they end up having the best best chances of the game, the later the game went on, it became more stretched. The best chances have done pretty well in my book. I'm just pleased you can get that passionate about that game, to be honest. This is the most lively thing out of the whole bloody match as far as I'm concerned. See, I thought it was all right. I, I, I thought it was interesting. I know everybody was down on it after the game and particularly, obviously, a goalless draw, but I thought it was quite interesting. I thought, as I say, Thiago is just, when any game he's involved in is a dream to watch. He was sensational. <laughs> yeah, he was sensational. But Alisson, um, one goal for Liverpool in their last four Premier League games. In fact, they haven't scored in their last three. Down to fourth in the table. Um, thoughts, feelings about that attack in particular? I'm not panicking. Really, I'm not. And uh, we were gushing about them when they scored seven against Crystal Palace. I don't, you don't become an, an ineffective team uh, overnight virtually these things these things happen i think probably there is too many people tiring at the same time that 
it's a it's a click thing, isn't it? And if it's not quite clicking, then then you get stodgy periods. But you, I just I just look at the lineup, and I still I'm still on the drool phase of it. I think it will come good. I don't think this is the new Liverpool, and they're only going to score three goals between now and the end of the season. It's just it's just it's just a little bit of a wacky campaign. And I, you know, I agree with Gregor with um, Thiago back. They've got someone who can provide the, those those inch perfect, quick thinking passes. And that's that's the problem. If there's a problem with Liverpool, it's that when the machine works, they require everyone to be on the same mental level and on the same wavelength, which which requires sort of fast thought, quick, quick. Yes, I need you know you need you need your midfielders to be to sort of know where the runs are coming and that interplay to be really sharp because they ask a lot of themselves in the way that they set up and if one or two are a bit tired and you know this this you know you do I do feel you know if Jota was fit they would have won that game and probably all the games they haven't won so they've been a bit unlucky in that sense but I do I do I do not I am not in panic mode I still saw even in the nil nil I saw a lot that was a lot that was crisp and a lot that was reasonably beautiful how good is Fabinho? I mean, that that uh, to have him at centre half. I mean, he was the best centre half on the pitch. He's, how many times has he played there? Um, that, I mean, that one where he, Rashford was uh, taking him on in the second half, and you just thought, you know, there's at the very least a shot coming off here, and quite probably a goal. And the way he just shepherded him out towards the corner flag. Not just that, his distribution as well. Again, you saw some of the, there were times in the first half, particularly where some of the United still trying to pass it out the back and you just thought it was like, a, you know, the, sort of the classic hand grenade passing going on, on on the back line. And then you've got this guy who can just do whatever he wants with the ball from from that position. I and mean, it was just, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what, a, what a player. Um, so versatile. Um, yeah, so valuable for them in, in pretty much whatever role he plays. I think, the fullbacks are are probably one of the main issues for Liverpool. Just in that they're not at the same level, particularly Trent Alexander Arnold. You know, Andy Robertson is still full of energy and running, but Trent's definitely below par this season. He has been for six, eight months, to be honest. Um, but particularly now, and you know, you, if, even then, no, you're still playing some of those <laughs> those switches of play, which are among the most satisfying sights in football for me. Um, but they're, they're you know. It, if they're kind of blocked through the middle or the front three, they're they're almost the creators for the front three. And if they're not they're not really clicking properly, then that's a that's a problem for Liverpool. Good news for the neutrals. Uh, we'll get to do it all again next weekend in the FA Cup between Liverpool and Manchester United. <laughs> Hopefully, well, uh, there should definitely be at least one goal. Let's put it that way. Uh, maybe they'll come in the penalty shootout. Um, but yeah, look, it finished goalless and I think both sides will take the point. Um, let's move on to events at the King Power Stadium, though. In fact, we're going to focus in on the top four in the Premier League. It finished Leicester 2, Southampton 0. Brendan Rodgers... A Leicester side was second until Manchester City hammered Crystal Palace last night. They're now second, Leicester down to third. But it was a cracking game at the King Power Stadium between Leicester and Southampton. Chances at both ends, incisive football from both teams. I think Southampton missed Danny Ings after his positive COVID-19 test. And Jamie Vardy maybe could have had a hat-trick in that game as well. Not quite at his brilliant best, but still a great game. Gregor, what did you make of it? Yeah, look, Leicester just continued to... I don't think this is a really interesting game because they're two of the two of the best coach teams in the country, I think, and two of the teams who are I'd say maybe if you put Liverpool and City aside, who are most invested in the kind of in their manager 
and their leadership and probably two of the most stable clubs. So yeah, I think we just saw that, that Leicester have that little bit more quality than Southampton, despite all that. You know, they're they're both got kind of talismanic strikers, uh, you know, intense pressed with intensity, uh, as I say, very well coached. But I just think Leicester are kind of operating in a slightly different plane now in terms of some of the recruitment. And you saw that. And you saw that mainly in terms of kind of creativity. Um, I think, you know, Madison looks like he's back, getting back to his best. Telemans has been outstanding this season. The way he's, from a deeper role, he's kind of, he's, 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 he's combining the kind of industry and, and defensive resolve with creativity from deep. You know, that's very valuable just now. Um and, uh, you know, I've spoken about my love for Harvey Barnes many times and uh, Jamie Vardy still still going strong, uh, just turned 34 last week. So Le- Leicester look ominously good. I've not even mentioned James Justin, who, again, just keeps... It's remarkable. Ben Chilwell, Chilwell leaves for 50 million in the summer and there's barely a ripple being felt because they pull through a guy who they signed from Luton the season before. And, you know, looks like he'll be an England player within the next few months, I would say. Um so, you know, Leicester look really, really good. I think as I say, Southampton Southampton have been have been brilliant this season. Just the last James James Gearbrand Brand wrote a good piece this morning actually about their, their kind of issues on front of goal. And that the I think in the first twelve games they scored twenty four goals. In the past six they've only scored two. Um, you know, they missed Danny Ings obviously. But the, the other interesting thing about these two teams is that they they're both ranked very low for the number of chances they create. But they're very clinical when they do so, and obviously a lot of that has to do with things and Vardy. But the I think both of them have in this strange season have slightly dialed back in the their pressing how intense you know the intensity of their game. They've both spoken about this, in fact, and you know slightly more patient with the ball. But yeah, no, I, it's still very tight as well. So Southampton dropped in the league a little bit, but they're about four points from the Champions League, and um, you know it's, it's going to be it's a concertina kind of top half of the league this season, and I think these two teams will both be in a show kind of the, the, the mix up for Europe well it's interesting Leicester fell away didn't they in the second half of last season they missed out on the top four on the final day against Manchester United of course Matt are they better placed to reach the Champions League this year do, do you think and, and do you think they will uh, I mean it's it's going to be tough just because uh, you know Big clubs, a lot of big clubs jostling with them, but there is it's definitely possible. Um, I think they are better placed to avoid that kind of slump. Um, I think, you know, as as Gregor says, I think Harvey Barnes. That's a couple of times I've seen him in the flesh. Harvey Barnes has super impressed me. He's just getting better. Obviously, um, Wesley Fofana came off in this game. You know, he had a sort of rare. Um, a glitch or, or two and there was a worry that he was going to get sent off but I mean he's just been absolutely outstanding this season Castagno has been you know generally very good they're just yeah in each department they've got players who are who are getting better um, so I think they will I think they will sustain I mean obviously the you know the the big question over that is always going to be keeping Vardy fit and keeping keeping Vardy flying just because of that that reliance on him but I think that reliance even itself is yeah, is is shared out, especially if 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 Madison keeps gets getting in the goals as well. So no, I think I I think they're say two or three times I've seen them in the flesh. They've been really good to watch. Um, uh, I saw them at Tottenham not that that long ago, um, and I think there's 
there's something that's as Gregor said that they're very well coached. They understand what they're doing, and if play, individual players are getting get, getting better, then that just shows you how much productive time has been spent on the on the training ground. Uh, Alison, is there something about the fact that it's Leicester? that helps them a little bit in that they can go under the radar. They'll always be seen currently as, as being, you know, performing above where we expect them to be in our minds, despite that Premier League win a few years back. Um, and that means that Brendan Rodgers and his players can, can get along with their work, you know, quietly, you know, and a little bit under the radar. I well, you might, you might have a point. I don't, I don't, I don't think Brendan Rodgers is under any particular pressure. Um, and I think, you know, that, you know, as Matt points out, there's a lot of big teams jostling and worried that there are, you know, they're expected to make the top four. There are only four places, so you can't all make it, mate. So there, I don't think Rogers has that pressure on him, um, partly because they're a club that uh, don't buy big and then say to the manager, well, there you go, you've had the outlay, make miracles happen. They're, they're very astute behind the scenes and make good profits on the players that they sell and they're clever about their recruitment. Roger doesn't have anyone who's even a quarter as effective as Vardy when Vardy needs a rest or, or you know, or he will need a rest even if he doesn't get injured. So that, that's a slight problem. But they do, I think, I think, I think part of the reason you're saying what you're saying, Hugh, is because they do, Leicester, when they play well, they do play with a sort of freedom that you don't see with a lot of clubs in the top half of the table. They... They play as if they're in a cup game and they're the underdogs and they play with joy. And there's definitely a very good camaraderie in the team. So they sort of act like, and it's weird in a way, I think I think, I think, I think Rodgers ought to feel he should go one step further and make the Champions League this season because they did drop off rather embarrassingly last season. It was in their hands and they couldn't do it. But they, they, as a team, they play, they play like very talented underdogs a lot of the time. A sort of youthful joyfulness and um, a relish. They sort of relish being on the break. It's 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 like that sort of Vardy effervescence spreads around the team, and they when they when it clicks for them, they they are very lovely to watch. So um, I think probably it's the overall lack of pressure internally, not just you know the, what the rest of the league think about them that I think gives them huge advantage yeah there's a big game to look forward to involving Leicester comes tomorrow against Chelsea in the Premier League Frank Lampard's team got uh, a second league win in seven games for them it's not going great but they did beat 10 man Fulham at the weekend it's a massive game for Leicester if they win they can go nine points ahead of Chelsea Matt but who do you think it's more important for Frank Lampard or Brendan Rodgers well, I think it's important, in just but in very different ways. I mean, you know, just because Leicester are doing well doesn't mean to say that they'll sort of you know shrug their shoulders at, at if if uh, if points are dropped. I think this is a huge opportunity. I'm sure um, Brendan Rodgers himself is an ambitious man, and you know, having just missed out on it last year, will be desperate to you know what what a good achievement it would be if they can if they can get in the top four among those those big boys and especially if they can you know when you consider the money that say an Everton have spent to to to, to get ahead of them so but yeah it's, it's and it's it's key for for Frank Lampard in in a very different way just in a in a sort of he's on a what to him must feel like a weekly trial at the moment and that's um that's draining it's hard work he's he's also on a sort of weekly trial of his of his team getting getting them functioning and there's still clearly we've talked about this before on here that there's you know it's 
teething problems might sound a sort of too kind of way of putting it when you spend you know 200 odd million putting together this um yeah roster of of brilliantly skilled attacking players but you know that's how it feels it's you know ZHC back um now having had a, a break break out and they'll be hoping that he you know because he was key before he needed that break um needing to get him back to, to full speed but there's still Werner's obviously still remains the the thorniest issue uh, of the lot um and yeah that <laughs> there'll be relief at the moment that they just beat Fulham and and just felt 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 what it likes to win feels feel what it likes to just keep in touch with the top four but i you know, it's a weekly trial is the way to put it. Not necessarily from the owners, but we know what we know what they're like too. Uh, Gregor, do we expect a- another Chelsea win here? Do you think they took a step at the weekend, or will they be the slight underdogs uh, for the game at the King-, King Power? I certainly wouldn't expect a win, no. And I don't think they took much of a step forward when Fulham were down to ten men for a, for a significant chunk of the game, um, and. You know, Fulham, Fulham deserve credit again. We seem to be saying that, you know, playing against some some big sides of late and giving them really tough run. They look like a well organised team and again also well coached now. Um, I mean, Mason Mount is the thing that is the player that's kind of I don't know. He's he's, he's the best at everything for Chelsea at the moment. You know, in terms of he's he's creating chances, he's scoring goals, he's a little terrier in midfield. He's got that bit of bite about him. Um, so it is a kind of a bit of an unwelcome sort of juxtaposition when you have this kid, this kid that you brought through the academy, and despite all the, you know, all the the, the millions, hundreds of millions have spent in the summer, he's he's the one who's who's shining so brightly, really. Um, so I I think I think what Alison was saying is right. I think if you look at this game, the the biggest contrast is one team's playing under a lot of pressure. It feels like, and the other look like they're playing with freedom, um, and I think that can be valuable. Leicester. Leicester don't look like they play under pressure in any game, really. The only time is if there's been moments in the season, early, particularly early in the season, where they say against West Ham, for, I think it was, where if a, they've really got to break a team down and they're the team who, who I suppose are the favourites. Uh, they've struggled a few times this season, but I think they've been very flexible in the way they've approached each opponent and, and I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if Leicester won this game. Alison, are you confident that, that Chelsea can go away to Leicester and, and, and get a win? Well, I was, I was at the cottage on Saturday and it, what, it, what it felt like was that Frank Lampard had sat down in lockdown and thought he'd do a nice pretty jigsaw puzzle, but someone, someone added, as a joke, as a joke, decided they tip another jigsaw in at the same time without him knowing. So he was trying to make one picture out of two puzzles. And he's he's that's what he's got. He's got too much he's got too much choice. And a lot of the things that ought to be happening are not happening. And he's I think he's got oh, I think he's got a massive headache now because he keeps he keeps tweaking it. And no matter what he does with a tweak, it's big news. So he drops Werner to the bench. Well, that's, you know, it costs a lot of money. That's news. But he doesn't start with Tammy Abraham. He decides to start with Giroud. A lot of people would say, um, well, about blooming time because Giroud's a class act. Also, they've got to think about, do they want Giroud to go somewhere else? Do they want to hang on to him? They've got to keep him happy. It, it, Giroud, of course, is having, to de- is, is having to deal with two 
two wide men with him who, for some unknown reason, decided they that they, they were going to have their worst ever game. I don't. I mean, Pulisic and Ziyech, they were they were really quite poor. Um, uh, this is this is supposed to be you know the 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 front line you would lust after. It's. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. And then when he thinks he's got the game won, Fulham are down to 10 men. He brings on Timo Werner. And all Timo Werner does in that situation is, is, is make himself look even less likely to get a start for the club. I do not envy Frank Lampard his, what he does with those front players, the midfield and the front three at all. Whether he should stick with the front three, that's another. I mean, maybe it's just not set up for 4-3-3 anymore. I don't know. But I think it's it's it's... As the season's gone on, really weirdly, it's getting more difficult as more people pile those extra jigsaw pieces in that should be in the puzzle for him. He should, he should, it should be by now coasting it with the talent he's got at his disposal. And we haven't even mentioned Kai Havertz. I mean, ugh, ridiculous. And if, if Fulham had not gone down to 10 men, I don't think I don't think Chelsea would have won that. Yeah, I feel this a similar way. It's going to be a really interesting approach to the game from Frank Lampard away from home against Leicester City. And you wouldn't be surprised if Brendan Rodgers got one up uh, on him as well. Uh, we look forward to that. We'll, I'm sure, discuss it on Thursday's podcast. But if you're enjoying today's episode, remember, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods for that matter. And get yourself a digital subscription to the Times and Sunday Times as well because you can get it on all of your devices at the moment you can read about the rise of emil smith Rowe at arsenal from tom roddy or tony cascarino's views on the improvements needed for roberto firmino and adama triore at wolves sign up today go online get yourself one month free right now search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started voiceover describes what's happening on your iphone screen voiceover on settings so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Them. 
It's reported in the Times that Arsenal's Mesut Ozil has flown to Turkey to complete a free transfer move to Fenerbahce. Gary Jacob writes, Arsenal and Ozil are yet to come to an agreement over the £7 million that he is still owed. Uh, but the 32-year-old uh, does seem like he's about to end his near eight-year spell with the Gunners very, very shortly. And it's the focus of the last word in today's times as well. The question they're asking, is it a fond farewell or good riddance to Ozil? Gregor, what do you think? I don't want to be as um, as harsh, to be honest, and say good riddance, but I think it's it's, it's long overdue and it's a good thing for Arsenal. And it's probably a good thing for Mesut Ozil as well. I think that we, we all know how um, at, his, at his best he was an exquisite player, like technically outstanding. Um, I think in his best season he had a hand in 28 goals in 2015-16. Um, and, you know, we although although he, he was never the player who who kind of lifted arsenal onto an, up to another level i think they only, you know they won three three fa cups in his time um since he signed his new contract essentially it's, there's there's like two acts in this in the Ozil story after he signed his his enormous new contract um you know he's i think he's played 40 premier league games since he signed the contract uh scored six goals and registered five assists so it's like Arsenal were a club in a in a lot kind of turmoil at that moment. There was you know risking losing him and Alexis Sanchez, and it just turned out to be um, one of the worst decisions that they've ever made. And you know people have justified it saying he's already they already paid the transfer fee. He you know although his his wages were enormous, extortionate, three hundred fifty thousand a week apparently. Um, when when you 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 think about what it would cost to sign a player like that, it was still. The right decision. I just, I've always said, I've always maintained, there's no other club in European football who would have come close to paying Mesut Ozil. He could have gone to China or somewhere or the MLS and maybe done it, but no one, no other club in Europe would have come close to that. And so, for that reason alone, it was a mind-boggling decision. And you know, the last last few, there's all there's so many things that come into Mesut Ozil's sort of decline in the last few years in terms of. His relationship with Germany, his relationship with uh, the Turkish Prime Minister, um, you know, his champion, championing of causes outside football, and people kind of weave these things together. But the fact is, he had opportunities on the pitch. He was, by every manager, he was given opportunities. Arteta started him in the, his first 19 games, and he's not, he's not done it. He's not done it on the pitch. He's not the player he once was. So this is long overdue for me, and I, you know, I think. I think Arsenal will improve because of his departure and his, his absence and the, the lack of noise now around him. But are you sad the way that things have ended for him? Not really. I mean, you know, there's also, as, as much as Ozil was an exquisite player to watch at times, and there was the, the whole narrative around him that he was a bit of a luxury player, and then people will come out and counter that by showing that he runs further than anyone else on the pitch in some games. And, you know, perceptions are there for a reason. And I, I generally, more often than not, I think they're justified. And I think he was at times a player who couldn't really be relied on to, to do the other side of the game. And that's, that's you know, the, the pressing and the, you know, and Arsenal also in the last few years, that's become more and more important in football in the Premier League. And so he was almost slightly left behind. He 
couldn't quite find a role in modern football as well, I think, despite his his brilliance and his his talent. So you know, a lot of things go into into it. I'm not sad though. I think it's long overdue, and I think um, you know this happens to a lot of people. And he's you know, how, how could you feel sad for someone who's who's earned? I think as Gary uh, Jacob reported today, 128 million pounds in his seven years at Arsenal. Uh, Matt, fond farewell or good riddance? I was going to say, does you know, 120 million, but is he happy? Um, but no, I, <laughs> well, that's a very fair point. Uh, probably not, actually. No, I, I, I feel a sort of, I feel a, uh, a pang of everything, to be honest. A, a certainly sadness, but that's less to do with the sort of Arsenal ending of just a bit of a sadness that he was a player. I mean, I remember seeing him dismantle England back in uh, under 21s, back in 2009. Uh, obviously dismantled England uh, senior team in in 2010 um, at Bloemfontein, and you know you you felt like you're there. You were watching. I think yeah, people talk about and then as this is a Ballon d'Or winner. Um, yeah, this is that's 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 his level. And obviously, when you you know signed to play for a club like Real Madrid as their their number ten playmaker, then that's that is your potential. And I guess it's a sort of combination of sadness, frustration, bit of anger actually that. That that talent was never fulfilled, and I think he's you know he he does have to. I think Gregor's right; he's got to carry some of the can for that. Probably quite probably most of it. Um, so I think that's it's, it's the Arsenal thing has just been a uh, you know story of mismanagement on you know from the club idiotic contract in in a sort of panic not to lose him for free at the time. You know, just executive failure there to give that 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 ludicrously big contract. But to say I, I, you know, thinking about the player himself is I think is sort of more important. And there is that just frustration of a career that that sort of fizzled fizzled out and um, and sort of you know what seemed to be one of the world's great talents. That I mean, blimey, he played in a World Cup final. He won a World Cup. Um, you know, he's. <laughs> He's, he's, yeah, that's not that's not a bad thing to stick on the mantelpiece, and yet you feel like this was not a player who fulfilled that, yeah, say sort of Ballon d'Or level uh, talent that we saw certainly in in those early years around 29, 2010, uh, and so on. Alison, for you, fond farewell or good riddance? Well, no, I mean now he's not he's not in any he's not been named in any squad. You can't you can't you can't be sad he's gone because he wasn't playing. And I mean, I don't. I genuinely don't enter the national lottery because I would be embarrassed to have money I did not earn. I think happiness from money comes from earning it, not from being given it or getting luck. So I don't think he could have been. I'd like to think he wouldn't be happy not earning his money. Maybe I'm a bit puritanical. On <laughs> Good <one>. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> That's a whole podcast in itself. I th- you know, should you enter the national lottery? I think that's the what a great topic. I have to say, I yeah, I do, and I can't wait to win it. And you won't, when you're trying to ring me on a Monday morning and you can't get through, you'll know why because I'm on a I'm on an island. I would love to debate that at length, but to go back to to Mesut Ozil, I think there's a dash of bigotry in how we talk about him in this country. If you compare him to Gareth Bale, for example, there are a lot of parallels, and I think we think Gareth Bale because he loves Wales, he's forgiven most things. And because we know what he can do, he's forgiven most things. Um, but we, we don't apply that to Mesut Ozil. We think he's got his priorities wrong. So I think I think we come at it in a jingoistic sort of way sometimes. Um, 
and I feel sorry for him. And whenever I've been on Urzel duty, which means you go to a game and you're really there to write about him, or maybe you're not on Urzel duty and you go to a game and there's nothing else you want to write about other than him because he's so blooming fascinating because he does operate in a different time zone. It's like watching a sci-fi film. He, you know, he's been plonked there from a different dimension and he's not moving or thinking or passing the ball in the rhythm of the team. And yes, often would still manage to do something very beautiful. Uh, so he was a, a very peculiar, ethereal sort of figure for me. Um, I've seen him play really beautifully and also appallingly badly. But um, it's... I won't miss him because I, I'd already started to miss him when he was dropped from the squads. And, and you know, all, all he became was just, as, as Gregor said, someone to be a distraction for Arteta and, um, you know, maybe to, to, to a means of criticising Arteta for not knowing how to handle him. And I hope, I wish him well. I hope he, I hope he, he sets, he sets his new club on, on fire. Not literally, obviously, but I hope he does wonderful things. And, uh, and um, maybe, ah, I will say, I hope he does more for Venerbahce than Gareth Bale is doing for Spurs. So there. Mm, exactly, exactly. Um, for me, it's a fond farewell, I've got to say, simply because I think for the the, the great games he's played and the, the things that he's done that you you don't expect and that many other players couldn't even imagine, um, I think he's still got to go down as one of the sort of best creative players we've seen in the, in the Premier League. And also, I just hate the idea, and it happened a few times in world football, that a player is, for me, he's a scapegoat of all the malaise that has happened at Arsenal. He was the one player picked out of the squad who footballing... Um, problems were down to him and when he wasn't in the team well then who did they blame and it seems a bit like when Pogba was out of the team at Manchester United it was still Meza Ozil's fault what was happening on the pitch and I, I hate to see that to be perfectly honest because I think then then some of what Alison's saying might be a little bit true although he didn't help himself when he was when he was live tweeting games this season well what do you mean he didn't he supported the team if he doesn't want to be the problem when he's not on the pitch then live tweeting the, the game alongside it is not really a way to keep the out of the shadows. Well, you see, that's the thing. I just, I don't think a player who hasn't played can be blamed. It was like Arsenal play badly. And then one of the things to come out of it was Meza Ozil was tweeting during the match. Well, I'm sorry, he wasn't even there. You know, he shouldn't be getting flack for Arsenal playing badly and losing games when they've left him out of the Premier League squad and he's at home. And I think he should be allowed to tweet if he's not in the ground, to be perfectly honest. It's not like he was, it was hate mail. Um, and the other thing is, I don't think a player, and I think Meza Ozil fits into this category where the contract that he was given is one of the, the sticks to beat him with. You know, he's, he's not responsible for the amount of money he gets paid. He's not going to say no to it. And so, you know, I, I, strangely, I think his time at Arsenal would have gone very differently over the last couple of years if he was on £125,000 a year. But the club seemed desperate to get him out. And that, re and that, for me, even though you're right, he was given opportunities, meant, you know, he was more likely to be left out of the Premier League squad this season, when at times I feel like they've, they've needed him to play as well. So, you know, it could have gone differently in many ways. Who knows? He could have played 10 or 15 games more this season and it might have changed the way their season has gone because he is an experienced player, you know, and he, he could have rubbed off slightly differently on some of their youngsters as well, who, let's be honest, they're doing well. But I still think a World Cup winner can add something to that group. Um, Alison, what do you think? Well, just to hammer home my point, you know, what's, what's the difference between Mesut Ozil cheekily tweeting from his sofa and Gareth Bale and 
unveiling and folding a flag saying Wales, Golf, Madrid. We all laugh at that, but we think Ozil's being cheeky. It's double standards. No, I laugh at I laugh at both of them, but only because I'm not a Wales fan or a Madrid fan or an Arsenal fan. Both were not helpful to his teammates or his club. So, and they both know that when they do it. So, I mean, you can talk about them. They feel like you know why? Why am I being singled out? Why poor me? It's always me. Why always me? They could lift up a shirt like Balotelli. It's it's always them because a they're not performing on the pitch primarily. And B, because they know they know that when they're doing things like that, it is not helping their cause, their cause or the cause of their teammates. So, you know, they're not absolutely there are some seriously kind of distasteful uh, conversations around Mesut Ozil um, and, as you say, kind of jingoism at play. But I don't think he's helped himself either. And ultimately... Ultimately, his performances. I know. I, actually, to come back on your point about his money too, hundred percent. It was it was Arsenal's mistake to give him that money. He he's going to take it. I would have taken it. P- players should get as much as they can because it's a, you know, they, they are the stars. The industry is built around them. Um, so I've I've no problem with the amount of money he's earned. All I'm saying is that was a line in the sand, because after that. Partly because Arsenal, you know, Wenger left, Arsenal were on a difficult path, but also his performances dipped. So that is the line in the sand that everyone looks at. Before then, he was, you know, he was a successful player for Arsenal. After it, he was a king of albatross. So Matt would take the money, I'd take the money, you take the money, Gregor. But of course, Alison would would have said, no, 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 no. You give me 50, you give me 50 grand a week, I'll be fine with that. Um, just quickly, a point about the I'm end happier. of... You'd be happier. Yeah, I'm sure you would be. Uh, the end of the creative genius, a point that was made by our colleague, Jonathan Northcroft, um, pointing out that after David Silva, Christian Eriksen, Edin Hazard and Meza Ozil had all left the Premier League in quick succession, that it wouldn't be great, let's call it that, for the Premier League's quotient of artistry, Matt. This number 10 role, the creative player, maybe some would describe it as a luxury player. Is it dying out? Um, you're inviting me to talk about Iberiese again, aren't you? But um, um, no, it's. I, I think dying out. I think it requires more of an all-rounder. Basically, I certainly think uh, Greg. I think alluded to this earlier that in in Ozil's case, certainly that you know the the idea that you can sort of ghost around through games and and just pop up for the sort of moments of 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 artistry. You know, obviously, you know, with a, with an assist, something that changes the game. Um, I, I think managers are looking for more. I mean, Fernandez, like we just talked about earlier for the Man U performance, you know, he's a beautiful player, beautiful, creative player. But then we then ended up discussing about whether he should have been used in a you know, destructive role to be, you know, on Thiago because, you know, as, as, as a 10, that, that, that could have been a sort of dual role for him. So, I, you know, I think the idea, obviously with pressing teams, the idea of a sort of, floaty type is is certainly gone um more and more teams are you know are, are, are playing with that style with that sort of uh full press style certainly you know in a lot of the successful teams so i think it's more you know we want creators it's possible to be a creator we've got many beautiful beautiful technical players around but i just think the demand on them is more sort of 360 shall we say they often have to be the wide player in the three that's that you know that's just the kind of a systemic kind of direction of travel of the way teams set up. I think really the the wide players in a in a front three are often 
essentially the number 10s, the creators. They might drift from, from wide to, cent- to central. Someone like James for, for Everton, for, per se, he kind of, you know, he, he's, he's a classic number 10, really, but he's often playing on playing playing from wide. So I think, you know, as Matt's saying, a lot of it's to do with what your responsibilities are Without the ball now, essentially. And Havertz, Havertz is part. I think you know, Alison mentioned mentioned Havertz at Chelsea as well. I mean, you know, the the bits I've seen of him, he's got he's got a sort of there's a something lo- lovely in his sort of just the way he moves and and just the li- little layoffs and little flicks. But yeah, you know, I'm not saying he's he's an Ozil, but he there is something about him that I think is still adjusting to the to the English game and to to Frank is still grappling with with yeah what 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 is his role. Um, uh, and with the understanding that you, you sort of, you can't just sort of come in and out of games. There seems there's there's a sort of perpetual motion about a lot of teams now, a perpetual involvement. And I guess that's that is where Ozil did feel like he was a sort of player out of his time. And Chelsea bought him, knowing that he was a floaty player. That's that's the thing. And that's a bit of a risk, isn't it? You're buying a player who almost has that luxury tag, but you you know you're going to have to make him work differently in the Premier League for it to work. And it, all this conversation just reminds me of going to watch Southampton when they had Matt Letizia in the team. And do you, <laughs> he, what his tactic was, if I don't move for 90 minutes, people will forget to mark me and then I can ping, I'll win the game. And it was a tactic. It wouldn't work now, but it it, <laughs> it was almost anti what the football we have now. But honestly, that wasn't like a one-off. He did it in every Southampton game I watched. Oh, well, Matt Letitia is a good point to move on to our next topic because we're talking about screamers, unbelievable goal scorers. And Matt Letitia, I mean, he was up there, wasn't he, in terms of just the highlights, real of goals. But in, in Dombele at Spurs, in fact, reminds me of a little bit what we were talking about a moment ago as well. You know, this player who's come into the Premier League, who's got a bit of artistry about him. But Jose Mourinho says there needs to be more to your game than that. And at the weekend, he scored an unbelievable goal as well. Whether he meant it or not, maybe is a little bit debatable for me. But uh, again, that is one to add to the highlights reel. And Gregor, you've written about a lad at Swindon, is it? who scores screamers this weekend. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, he's had a really interesting season. A guy called Scott Twine, 21-year-old midfielder. He spent the first half of the season on loan at Newport County um, from Swindon. And he scored he scored six goals from outside the box in the first half of the season. And then his first game for Swindon, Swindon clearly in a Newport are chasing uh, automatic promotion from League 2 Swindon are in a relegation fight in the league above so they clearly saw his uh, exploits and thought let's get him back and his first game against Ipswich he scored an absolute belter like a, a kind of knuckleball strike that Ronaldo it, it kind of was reminiscent of Ronaldo's free kick against Portsmouth in uh, 2008 I think it was you know that that amazing technique that it, dip, it rises and dips and swerves. I just looked into it and he scored he's, he's, he scored more goals from outside the box than any player in the top four leagues in English football. He's taken more shots from outside the box. I think 53 in total, on average of 2.6 a game. Um, and he's just, I spoke to him about it and he just said ever since he was kind of seven years old, he's tried to copy Ronaldo. And every every day in his back garden, shooting against the wall in the school playground, and my God, he's got a technique for it. And now championship clubs are circling, so it just serves. Sort of, the other thing is, it's a bit of a 
you know, there are fewer and fewer of these types of goals now with, I've said this in the piece, the advent of kind of expected goals and, and data in football, there's more informed decisions on the pitch. So there's more passes and fewer shots from outside the box. And it just reminded you, uh, looking at all of the goals, that there really is very little better in football, more little, very little more satisfying than an absolute thunder blaster from uh, outside the box. <laughs> I kept that. I kept that polite. <laughs> I've got to say, it's something I was thinking about a couple of weeks ago. There haven't been many screamers from distance in the Premier League, and I often blame the ball for that and say they need to make it lighter and and more difficult for goalkeepers to save. But that's just me wanting worldy goals to be scored. But it has given us the opportunity to talk about either our favourite screamers as a goal or our favourite scorer of screamers. Matt Dickinson, I'll start with you. I was just I was trying to look at it up earlier. I've, I distinctly remember Batistuta um, scoring one against Arsenal that had sort of threatened to take several people's heads off. Um, uh, <laughs> I think Batistuta was one of those players I just, I associate with just having, you know, thighs that could, um, yes, hit, hit a thunder blaster, um, but also just do it with, you know, he, he just did it with style as well. There's something about him. That's why I remember, I think it was actually, must have, it must have been one of those Champions League games against Fiorentina where I remember Martin Keown was just all over him, you know, uh, as he did. Martin was just right in his face trying to wind him up and stuff. And you just saw Batistuta turn around just thinking, you know, mate, you know, I'm Gabriel Batistuta. Who the hell are you? Um uh, which I'm sure Martin would have taken as a compliment. But yeah, Batistuta instantly springs to mind to me as um, yeah, as a guy, if he, uh, if he shot, I was ducking, basically. Ali, what about you? Oh, I'm going to go down memory lane with Matt, because he won't remember this, but I remember this. We, you gave me a lift to Cardiff, Matt, for the 2006 FA Cup final. Do you remember doing that? Did we have a fascinating chat, I hope, on the, the, the six hours <laughs> stuck in the queue to get over the Seven Bridge? You were going to cover the game and I was going as a fan. So I was all chirpy and bouncy and you were all miserable and wondering, wondering about deadlines and things. But um, so my favourite screamer is, because I was sat behind the goal, which it ended up in, uh, was Stephen Gerrard's 35-yard folly, which, which took the score to 3-3 and then the game to extra time and then Liverpool won. And the, it's not just that we won the cup and... Stephen Gerrard is is a very very fine player. It's I'm, I don't I honestly don't know how to say this without people looking at me like I might be slightly bonkers because this is true. It's true. I saw the goal go in before the ball reached Stephen Gerrard. I in my head I had a vision. Okay, that makes me sound like a nutter. I had a vision of the ball coming out to him and him scoring about five seconds before the ball actually reached him, which was an out-of-body experience, something something weird going on. It wasn't hope. I wasn't hoping it was happening. I actually saw it like I was on drugs, but I wasn't on drugs. I wasn't on drugs at all. Did you ever carry it in the car? It was weird. It was weird and beautiful at the same time. And it's never. I've never had that since. Alison, if you, if you can see the future, you should be doing the lottery after all. If, if I, you, you, you do it, <laughs> tell, 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 tell me the numbers and I'll take the winnings and then everyone's happy. My favourite goal scorer of uh, screamers was, and I've spoken about him being my favourite player anyway, but Clarence Sadoff could hit a ball from 40, 45, 50 yards out, honestly. 
him and Andrea Pirlo maybe in terms of, of wonder goals from distance. Pirlo slightly different. He managed to get the movement and the dip and Seedorf seemed to be pure power when they were both playing for AC Milan as well. But definitely look up at an angle from about 50 yards out. Clarence Seedorf's goal for Real Madrid against Atletico Madrid. Unbelievable goal. Seems to get faster and faster and faster as it approaches a goal. Doesn't seem like it. The net is the only thing that would have stopped it, thankfully, for those sitting behind it. Um, but yeah, look, I, I also loved Xavi Alonso. Alonso thought technically he was brilliant striking the ball on both feet as well. Uh, but we could go on for, for ages on, on that one. Um, do well, share yeah, them with yeah, us yeah, if yeah, you yeah, want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the weather outside is frightful, his passing is still delightful. Everyone wants to know. <laughs> Alonso, Alonso, Listen. Alonso. These are the players we miss. And you know what? We're talking about Mesut Ozil and the end of artistry and all that. We could do a full podcast on what was the best generation for football because I'm still thinking, you know, around about 96 till about 2010, 2008, that was it, you know, that you had everyone. You had Cafus, Maldinis, Sadoffs, et cetera, et cetera, some great players. Um, but also now, they, they weren't drilled to within an inch of their life either. Zidane's could get away and Ronaldinho's could get away with doing exactly what they want. But that, as I say, is a totally different podcast. Uh, Matt Dickinson, Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd, thank you for being with me maybe we will get to that podcast uh, someday soon but those of you thank you for listening as well you can get yourself a digital subscription to the times and the sunday times you'll get more of our award-winning journalism across all of your devices sign up today go online and you will get yourself one month free just search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself started we will see you on thursday Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, rapper and songwriter Professor Green talks candidly about being raised on an East London council estate by his grandmother, his drug dealing, and how his father's suicide made him re-evaluate his own life. The one thing that I have in common with a lot of my, my friends who come from similarly disadvantaged backgrounds is that we all carry on and at the end of the day no matter what happens if you're still alive i don't think there's anything really left to do but carry on past imperfect with rachel sylvester and alice thompson professor green in his own words now available as a podcast listen on the times radio app or wherever you get your podcasts as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.